This episode is brought to you by Milano Cookies. Look, sometimes that long Zen yoga class is just not in the cards. So maybe a cookie is. Pepperidge Farm Milano believes you should make some time for yourself once in a while. I know I have a particular space in my sewing room that I like to just take a few minutes every day. I sit there. I think about things. It's kind of like meditation and munching at the same time. You can get that yummy, beautiful cookie flavor. It makes it luxurious and delightful, and I always feel recharged. Milano cookies are truly a treat worthy of your me time. They're delicate and crispy with luxuriously rich chocolate in the middle. You really want to keep these just for you. So remember to save something for yourself with Pepperidge Farm Milano. The Only Way is Through, a new podcast in partnership with iHeartRadio and Under Armour. Players, coaches, and athletes will share intimate and personal stories of performing at the highest level. Here is Canadian heptathlete Georgia Ellenwood. The reason I won is because on that day I was confident. I need to continue that mentality to understand that I can be an Olympic athlete. I can compete with the best in the world and just perform. Listen to The Only Way is Through, available now on the iHeartRadio app or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com. Welcome to the podcast. I'm Holly Fry. And I'm Tracy B. Wilson. So, alrighty, if you are in the hair industry, you may have heard of today's podcast subject. But if you are not in the hair industry, I suspect he will be a new discovery. Tracy, did you know about this person before we started talking about him? I did not. I mean, I All right. some, some of the names of people that he mentored, yes, definitely, definitely have heard of. Not him, though. And I've been thinking about this topic for a little while, uh, in part because I have always loved him as a figure in hair history. Um, I think I've mentioned on the podcast before that there was a time in my life where I was doing administrative work in hair salons. So I, you know, kind of have some of that history under my belt. Uh, and we'll talk about it in the course of his life story. But uh, he, for example, of sort of why he was an interesting character, he was doing purple and pink and blue and green hair decades before kids like me started futzing around with Manic Panic in the late 70s and early 80s. And he was really larger than life. He was the first celebrity hairstylist. And his influence still echoes in the industry. And there are also some aspects of his persona that bring up some very real questions about identity and cultural appropriation uh, that are worth discussing. And we're going to get to all of that. Uh, we are talking about Raymond Besson, who is also known as Mr. Teasy Weezy. But before we even get into it, I want to acknowledge up front, just as a heads up to you guys, this is about a dude who did white ladies hair. Uh, we, <laughs> we really want to do an episode in the future on sort of black hair care through history, because that's got its own whole fascinating uh, history to it. But that's one of those things that I think we need to bring in an expert on, because even though I worked in the salon industry in salons that had, you know, a significant proportion of our business that was black clientele and I knew those stylists, I still feel like I do not have a strong enough grip on all of those workings in that history to really speak with any sort of authority. Yeah. Uh, we need, I, I we need an insider I, for that. I don't think the world really needs uh, a podcast on black hair care from two white ladies who read it in a book. Correct. <laughs> that would be awkward and weird. So today we are getting 
Mr. Teasy Weezy, I saw not a single woman of color looking at a lot of films of him through the years. So, uh, as I said, this is pretty much going to be kind of affluent white women's hairdos that we're talking about. Uh, but we're going to jump right into his life story. So he was born in London's Brixton district in 1911, and his name at birth was Raimondo Pietro Carlo Besson. And later he had it legally changed to a more anglicized form, Peter Carlo Besson Raymond. And his father ran a barber shop, and it was there that uh, Raymond, as he preferred to be called later in life, uh, he kind of shifted that that pronunciation, learned all about hair. And he was tasked with, among other things there at the shop, creating false facial hair pieces for men. So he was making beards and mustaches from human hair. He opened his first salon in Mayfair in West London, and it became really popular. This was really opulent, decadent, and just the utmost in style for wealthy ladies, there were rumors that even during the austere times of World War II, he was rinsing his client's hair there with champagne. Yeah. And this is also, you know, uh, following World War II, there was still a lot of austerity and, and it wasn't like the economy immediately picked back up. We're going to talk about that in a minute, but yeah, not really a, a time when you would be like, you know what I want to do is indulge by rinsing my hair with champagne. I actually think that was probably just a rumor, but uh, it's fascinating and it indicates kind of what sort of character he was, that those are the kinds of plausible rumors that would pop up around him. Like how rinsing your hair in beer is supposed to be good for it? Maybe champagne too. Yeah, I think that's just one of those things that is uh indulgent. You know, it's like, I can waste. Woo! (laughs) Uh, And it was also at the Mayfair Salon that Raymond took on young Vidal Sassoon as an assistant. Uh, Sassoon, who started his first salon in 1954 after working under uh, Raymond Besson, went on to world-renowned, of course. But he credited Besson with giving him the skills that really made him famous. As you possibly know if you have paid any attention. Uh, Vidal Sassoon really became famous for his amazing haircuts. And later in his life, uh, he said of Raymond, quote, he really taught me how to cut hair. I'd never have achieved what I have without him. So Holly recently talked to fashion historian April Callahan on the show about how style and fashion during World War II was driven in part by limitations placed on certain materials. And while that particular interview was about France, All the countries involved in the war effort felt the financial pinch of the conflict. But as the 1940s came to a close and economies were starting to recover, one of the offshoots was this sort of return to uh, and re-embracing of glamour. And one of the industries that really experienced a massive growth during this time was the hair industry. Salon visits became not just a luxury, as they had been in harder financial times, but a necessity for many women. The rituals surrounding hair care became a natural part of the average white woman's weekly routine. You would visit the hairdresser for a shampoo and a set, and then you would maintain the look at home for the rest of the week using dry shampoo and rejuvenating curls with curlers and rollers and setting your hair overnight with pins. This reminds me of my grandmother... Yeah. I mean, when I was working in a hair salon, even though that would have been in the 90s, uh, we had a number of older ladies who still adhered to that schedule and came every single week like clockwork. Uh, we probably have listeners or members of their families that still do the same thing. It, it hasn't entirely gone away. But at this point in time, that was pretty much how you did your hair. Yeah. When I, I remember when I was a child and I would visit my grandparents for a week in the summertime, there was always a day when when, when my grandma Jenny <laughs> took me to the hair salon with her. 
And the timing of the world being financially ready for more indulgent approaches to personal grooming was really perfect for Raymond. And it was not long before his clientele began to grow and to include celebrities. This is when Raymond's talent for publicity became really apparent. He started appearing in segments on weekly chat shows, showing off the latest styles. And this is also the time when Raymond took on the nickname Mr. Teasy Weezy, although there are a couple of different tales of how this moniker came about. Uh, one version attributes the name to Besson's skill at backcombing hair, also known as teasing. We're going to talk about that a little bit in a minute. Uh, the other version involves some of his early TV appearances. So when styling young ladies during these TV shows, if there was a stray lock of hair, for example, at the side of the face, Raymond would make it into a curl and make it into a feature of the style And when asked by a host what these tendrilled pieces were called during one broadcast, he replied to her that they were teasy wheezies. But he also, if you watch any documentaries about film, there are lots of people that that kind of use a variation of that story where they're like, no, he would say, oh, and you put a teasy wheezy here and a teasy wheezy there. It's not entirely clear that the teasy wheezy was one thing. It was really more a phrase that he loved to use as kind of a catch all. Regardless, though, Mr. Teasy Weezy was larger than life. He would make appearances wearing a dramatic full cloak over his perfect suit. His hair was jet black with this contrasting white streak. His dogs, who were also dyed to the latest colors of the season, traveled along with him. He drove around in a vintage open-top Bentley, and he knew how to market the glamour of hair, and he knew how to market himself as a purveyor of that glamour. And soon he had his own weekly BBC television series. It aired on Saturdays at tea time so that ladies at home could enjoy their tea while also being served up a visual spectacle of all of the latest hair trends. Raymond would talk to them about the latest hairstyles he had invented, and he would show off a series of lovely models wearing those hairstyles, and the entire viewing audience could feel informed and in the loop with regards to the very latest and most chic looks. Ever the proponent of cutting-edge hair technologies, Mr. Teasy Weezy even promoted a waterproofing spray for hair that would enable ladies to dive right into the water and come out with their hairdo still fully intact. This waterproofing treatment would allegedly last a full week, but it appears not to have survived the test of time. Yeah, I, there's a, a video and it's linked in in my sources. So you'll see it in the show notes where he's doing a woman's hair and she really does dive into the pools. It's into a pool. It's kind of a tight to the head, like pin curled look. It's not like a big puffy affair. And she does come out looking pretty good. So it worked to some degree, but apparently not, (laughs) not well enough that it's still around. As early as late 1954 and early 1955, Raymond was experimenting with all kinds of fabulous hair colors. So if you think all of those fun colors you see around today, I mentioned at the top of the episode, like blue and purple and pink hair. If you think that's anything new, rest assured, stylists were already working with a rainbow of color washes as early as the 1930s. Uh, and it was becoming very popular in the 50s. Besson, like his contemporaries, would use temporary tints to create drama and and glamour. We're going to talk a little bit about how he liked a two-tone style. Uh, and they also would use these colors to match gowns for special occasions throughout the 50s. In 1956, famed British pinup girl and actress Diana Doors flew him to Hollywood to do her hair. She would make a fantastic podcast uh, subject herself. Her story involves a lost fortune that spread throughout various banks of Europe and that remains a mystery to this day. She paid... 
she paid 2,500 pounds to have Raymond brought in to give her a shampoo and a set. And this was amount, an amount that was downright scandalous in its enormity for the time. I mean, today, too, really. The pricey visit kept the gossip press busy for weeks. Yeah, you'll often see it written up as, like, that's the equivalent of a modest home. <laughs> it was really, really uh, kind of one of those gawker moments in terms of people just sort of gazing and going, really? You paid how much to have a guy set your hair? Uh, next up, we're going to talk about a couple of pieces of advice that Ramon gave to the women of the 50s to stay stylish. But first, we're going to pause for a word from one of our fabulous sponsors. Hey, listeners, I wanted to tell you about a new podcast from iHeartRadio called The Women, hosted by Rose Reed. It is a fascinating and deep dive interview show where Rose talks to changemakers and disruptors, and she finds out what really drives them. So she will ask each of them, what was your first stand and how do you navigate success and failure? And really, what's the cost of fighting for others? These interviews are really personal and they're candid and sometimes they're a little bit crass, but they are always really enlightening. You can listen to these firebrands and takeaway lessons that will help you navigate your own life and forge your own path. The debut season includes women like Valerie Plame, the former CIA agent who is now running for Congress, and whistleblower and pediatrician Dr. Mona Hanna-Atisha, who exposed the Flint water crisis and became the center of a swirling, swirling amount of problems, uh, and the legendary Buffy St. Marie, 60s songwriter and activist. Uh, I have personal interest in this show because I adore Rose and I executive produce it, and I think you're really going to enjoy the way that she gets into these conversations that feel like two friends talking, and they are an absolute delight. So subscribe to The Women on the iHeartRadio app, on Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, Holly, we have some exciting news. Yeah, I am wildly excited, and uh, people will have another opportunity to watch me cry at art. <laughs> yeah, you sounded so calm, and it's not a calm situation at all. Uh, our trip to Paris last year was really successful, so we're doing another similar trip this year, but this time to Rome and Florence. It's May 14th through 21st, 2020, and like last time, it is with a company called Defined Destinations, who is planning out this whole trip for us. Yeah, and during that week-long trip, we are going to see some of the great art that we have talked about on this show many times, including Michelangelo's David. We are going to go to Tuscany. We're going to visit St. Peter's Basilica. We are going to the Sistine Chapel. So it's going to be a fantastic trip. You can get the whole list of places that we are going and information about booking at defineddestinations.com. Scroll down to the Roman Florence trip with stuff you missed in history class or come over to our social media. We have posts about it there too. So uh, it was also in 1956, that same year that he flew to Hollywood to give that very expensive shampoo set, that Besson proclaimed that women over 20 should not wear their hair long. He uh, managed to dole out a little bit of shade to husbands who preferred longer locks on their wives in the press at this time, saying, quote, Husbands are the worst possible sources of advice for women on hairstyles. It is not that a man deliberately will try to give his wife wrong advice on her hair, but a husband suffers from two handicaps. If a woman asks her husband whether she should cut her hair or dye it blonde or make any major change, he will say no just to be on the safe side. He is afraid of getting into trouble if it turns out wrong. When he tells his wife he wants her to change to long hair of platinum blonde, he invariably does it because he has a sudden wish for her to look like somebody else. 
else. Anita Ekberg, for instance. I seems like this advice that that uh, long hair is not for like adult grown women lingered around for a while. Yeah. And, you know, I'm always a big uh, proponent of, like, I understand that styles come and go, but no one really should ever be telling anybody they should or should not do things with their appearance. Do what you like and what makes you happy. I'm sorry, Ramon, I'm not with you on this. (laughs) (laughs) So in that same interview, he also said that French twists are too severe and unflattering to 99% of faces and that women should keep things softer around their face. Yeah, he had opinions, as you know, celebrity stylists tend to do. Uh, but I have long hair. I put it in a French twist, a French twist, all the time, and it was way less severe than when I would braid it really hard. (laughs) Right? Uh, Again, everybody has opinions. Uh, His his reasoning was that they didn't. They also didn't stay very nice looking, and unless you were someone like Princess Grace, who could have their hair touched up constantly throughout the day, you really, um, you know, shouldn't bother with it. Uh, but to see what this opinionated stylist did like, there are a number of really wonderful videos online, but there is one in particular of one of his hair shows from 1957. Again, we will link it in the show notes, where he debuted a look called the Shangri-La. And this event was incredibly theatrical. Hair models appeared in ways equally silly and entertaining to the modern eye. Some of the ladies modeling the latest Raymond Besson looks are wheeled out in this video on little mini floats pulled along by men dressed in medievalish costumes. They look almost like court jesters, but not quite. One woman is in what looks like a teacup or maybe a cappuccino cup and white balloons create foam or maybe marshmallows, depending on how you're interpreting this around this seated model. One is in point shoes and dances ballet along the runway. There's a pair of models who are paraded through the crowd in what looks like a giant Easter basket. Yeah, it's a very big, like I said, it's extremely theatrical. Uh, but perhaps the most entertaining aspect of this show, and it's all narrated in that wonderful sort of newsreel uh, narration style, is the story behind it. So Raymond Besson claimed to have been inspired by a skiing accident. He took a tumble, according to the story, and lost consciousness. And when he came to, he looked at the mountain peaks around him, and he thought of Everest and the story of the everlasting youth and beauty that could be gained at the mythical Shangri-La. Ta-da! He had hair inspiration. (laughs) This Shangri-La hairstyle, by the way, is triangular or pyramid-shaped not unlike the peak of the of a mountain. The hair at the back is very short with the sides a little longer and curled or waved. The top has a little bit of lift, but it's mostly pretty sleek. Yeah, it's a it's a fascinating style. It's one that I think if you sported it today, you might get an odd look, but if you like it, you should do it just the same. Uh, in terms of hair color, Besson, as we mentioned earlier, was fond of two-toned styles, and that's definitely on display in this video as well as another video that we'll link to. Uh, And the two ways this style could go, according to him, were either light on top with darker sides and back or light sides and front with a darker back. And the big bridal finale of the show is another woman in a basket. And at this point, she comes out or she's drawn out by these men in their medieval ensembles. And Raymond steps out onto the runway to attach her little mini veil. And it's all very dramatic and exciting. (laughs) And the whole thing is exactly as much of a spectacle as you think. And it really seems like everyone in attendance just loved it. 
In part due to that spectacle-making nature, Besson's success continued to grow and rapidly in a seemingly exponential rate. The more high-profile clients he had, the more people wanted to see him. And he opened multiple salon locations, selling this completely over-the-top luxury experience in each one. His Kensington location offered uh, champagne fountains. Women had their hair done while sitting under expensive chandeliers and looking into mirrors with gilt edging. And his salon designs, you should point out, were also pretty revolutionary beyond just being the super opulent getaways for ladies uh, who had money. Raymond is said to have been the first to shift to an open floor style salon, just like the ones you have probably had your hair cut in dozens of times. Prior to that, stylists worked in much more closed off cubicles within a salon. It did not have that open airy feel that is pretty much the standard now. Like, how are you supposed to gossip with other people? <laughs> exactly. You have hit upon, like, a major thing. He wanted salons to be social centers as well as places people went to become beautiful. So with all these hair shows and TV appearances, dramatic presentation and indulgence that he was cultivating in his business, Raymond really made himself stand out as the first celebrity hairdresser. And lest any of our listeners think that Raymond's standing as a stylist was all smoke and gilded mirrors, his work was actually considered impeccable. In the documentary, Bouffants, Beehives, and Bobs, the hairstyles that shaped Britain, stylist Rose Cannon, who is a contemporary of Besson's, who is credited with inventing the blowout, says, quote, I always knew when somebody really did go to him. It was a cut that was so perfect, and in such a way cut that you couldn't do anything else with it. That was it. Besson himself once said, a woman's hair is like a work of art. It must have balance and composition. Lines must mean something, with every curl adding to the full effect. He considered every aspect of a woman's hair, face, and head when cutting and styling, and he would speak about them in terms of creating a geometric harmony. Yeah, it's fascinating. He, I mean, he would do hairstyles called like the cube and he would point out how every line of the, the style and the cut were accentuating different parts of the woman's face. And it's, when you see that, you then see how like Vidal Sassoon really applied the similar concepts of, of geometry to his work. And now that's completely common today. So. Uh, really quite groundbreaking at the time. Uh, one of Raymond's biggest contributions, though, to hair history was the invention of the modern bouffant hairstyle. And this name, of course, comes from the French verb bouffer, which means to puff. And while it existed in various forms earlier in history, the early 1950s saw the birth of Besson's version. You've probably seen bouffant hairstyles, but just in case you haven't or if you didn't know the name, it's a style that's created by first backcombing the hair for volume. So see above or his teasy-weezy nickname, where it came from. Uh, and then combing the hair around these teased pieces smooth to create a kind of bubble shape. It's definitely not a free-flowing style. It's one that's secured with lots of hairspray. If you have fine hair like me, lots and lots and lots of hairspray. <laughs> well, and it's uh, in in that documentary that I referenced just a moment ago, there's a, a modern woman talking about how, to her, she really loves him because she doesn't want to move her head and the hair moves with it. She wants it to be like a hat. <laughs> and that's kind of how they were. Uh, and despite the unnatural character of this style of the modern bouffant, it was a huge hit, uh, first in Great Britain and then globally. And it, it seemed at the time incredibly modern. The perfection, the control, and the tidiness of it was keenly in line with the quest for perfection that was common in a lot of 1950s style. 
So while Mr. Teasy-Weezy is associated the most with hair, he also had his finger in some other ventures, too. And we will talk about those right after a brief word from one of our fantastic sponsors. The only way is through. A new podcast in partnership with iHeartRadio and Under Armour. Join us as we hear from the world's greatest athletes, coaches, and trainers as they discuss how they utilize training, competition, recovery, and the latest innovations in fitness to improve their performance and push through their personal, physical, and mental challenges. Here is Canadian heptathlete Georgia Ellenwood. You can practice every day because you're working on things. Like you might slow something down or exaggerate another thing, but when you're competing, you're going as hard as you can for even that short amount of time. It's a lot of intensity and it's a lot of physical power, it's a lot of mental power. I think that's why it's so draining and to shift gears after every event, like, oh, I just ran the hurdles, now I have to think about high jump. How do I get as high up in the air as I can after I just tried to run as fast as I can? Giving that much intensity in such contrasting events can, can be really be difficult. Listen to The Only Way Is Through, available now on the iHeartRadio app or wherever you get your podcasts. To get back to our story, Raymond didn't just make a mark in the hair industry. He dabbled in a very minor way in politics in 1963. He ran for a seat on the council of the South Kinson Ward of Burnmouth, where he had a salon. There was an outcry when he announced his candidacy as a liberal candidate. Opponents felt by, that by virtue of being a TV personality, he had an unfair advantage. At the end, it didn't matter. He lost the election to the labor candidate. He had much more success in another arena entirely, which was horse racing. Also in 1963, he co-owned the horse that won the Grand National. That horse was named Ayala. And this horse had been a long shot, and the win came really as a total surprise. Uh, You can watch footage of that online. It's embedded in one of the articles I linked to. If you are maybe an animal lover, I don't know that you should watch it. It's I found it troubling. Uh, Watching horses fall in mud is upsetting for me. Uh, But you can see the whole thing and how his horse kind of really came from an unexpected point to win. And jockey Pat Buckley, who was only 19 at the time of this big win, reminisced years later that there had been no big party after the race, which surprised some people since Raymond Besson was known for doing everything lavishly and big. But this was perhaps because no one really expected Ayala to be victorious at all. In the 1970s, Besson decided to invest in another racehorse. This one was named Ragtrade. He initially bought the gelding at auction for 18,000 guineas, but he later decided to sell half of his share in the horse to two men, William Laurie and Herbert Keane. In 1975, Ragtrade ran the Grand National, but it was a disappointing showing. A new trainer, Fred Rimmel, was brought in the... Immediately, and the following year, 1976, Ragtrade redeemed himself entirely, winning the Welsh Grand National and the Grand National at Aintree. And there was, this time, indeed a celebration. As a side note, allegedly his horses had permed manes, but we haven't found any photos that clearly confirm this. They're all a little bit blurry. Yeah, horses go fast. So you don't really get a nice, uh, quiet shot on their hair a lot of the time. Uh, and photography has come a long way. Later in Besson's life, he really experienced a mix of deep tragedy, uh, as well as the highest of honors that someone could expect. In 1979, he lost one of his daughters, who was pregnant at the time, in a tragic accident. She'd been driving home from a wedding when she hit a damaged section of road. She wound up colliding with an oncoming car. 
He also lost his son-in-law and two grandchildren in the wreck. These deaths, of course, took a huge toll on the notoriously jubilant Raymond. Uh, yeah, some accounts basically say he was never quite his his same jovial self after that, which is completely understandable. Uh, three years after that event, though, in 1982, Besson was awarded the title Officer of the Order of the British Empire. And that honor is given, quote, for having a major local role in any activity, including people whose work has made them known nationally in their chosen area. Ten years after that, he died of cancer at age 80 on April 17th of 1992. Yeah, his life became quite quiet in its later years. He just wasn't in the public spotlight as much. So there's there's not as much like stuff to discuss as in the 50s and 60s when he was really kind of in the spotlight and changing the hair industry. Uh, and next, we're going to move into one of the trickier aspects of speaking about Raymond Besson's life uh, and and his persona. And it's brought about by his sort of theatrical presentation that we've talked about. Uh, and we mentioned that he was sort of larger than life. And his image was always carefully curated. He always, for example, wore a carnation in his lapel and that was always dyed to coordinate with his suit. And he painted his nails and he wore flamboyant custom tailored suits. And he sometimes also affected a sort of false French accent. And while we normally default on this podcast to letting historical figures define themselves in terms of their sexual orientation and their identity, we've talked before, we're not super in favor of, like, assigning a sexual orientation to a dead person who's not here to claim it for themselves. Uh, with Raymond Besson in particular, there's a cultural discussion that arises with this particular topic. Yeah, at one point uh, during a television broadcast, he exclaimed, quote, I am homosexuality. This, despite the odd phrasing of it, made him the first man to come out on television. But there is a lot of debate about whether that statement was nothing more than a publicity stunt. Some critics even point to his awkward wording as evidence that he didn't really know what he was talking about. And this was a put on. Uh, Besson, we mentioned just a moment ago, had children. He was married to actress Rosalie Ashley, and they had three daughters together. And friends described him as, quote, vigorously heterosexual. But he carried himself, at least publicly, in what would now be seen as a very stereotypically gay manner. And that's why his identity becomes really complex. He's been described in numerous writings as putting on a persona that was expected of him in his industry, which is unfortunate from the point of view that he had to be some kind of fake creation to achieve his success. But the other side of it, if he was feigning this image, is that he was feeding the stereotypes surrounding a group of people and a culture that he didn't belong to. It becomes really problematic, especially given this high profile, that he had a very real influence on the way people continue to perceive the salon industry and the people who work there, and also really gay men. Yeah, absolutely. And it, it's one of those things where uh, he really was quite famous in his time. He appeared as a character uh, on Red Dwarf and he was uh, there was a, a spoof of him on Monty Python. I mean, he was part of sort of the culture's knowledge at that point of what a, quote, gay man seemed to be, whether he was or not. Uh, but of course, if he was actually homosexual, and I feel compelled to point out that most people who knew him really swear he wasn't. But again, we 
We don't know. Uh, but if he was, it brings up the question of whether he married to fit in with societal norms. And though his personality seems to have run counter to a desire to be seen in any way as ordinary, the culture of that time period was still a minefield for gay men. Uh, keep in mind that this was a time when it was still illegal to be gay in the United Kingdom. It actually wasn't until 1967 that private sexual interactions, which there was a lot of legal wording around what constituted a private interaction, uh, between two men over the age of 21 was decriminalized in England and Wales. So it's a complex time. Well, and there's also the part where bisexuality exists. <laughs> Correct. There, You don't have to be one or the other. Well, and so many of the conversations uh, about this whole idea center around, like, was he gay or was he straight? He said he was gay, but he was married to a woman like... There's bisexuals, y'all. Right. Uh, it's yeah, it's it's not a, a black and white issue. There's no again, there's fluidity on that spectrum. <laughs> yes. Uh, so while the actual nature of Besson's sexuality could really be unimportant to anyone but his partners, the story really creates a lens through which to examine the cultural expectations of people in certain roles, as well as the history of LGBT rights. Food for thought. Yeah, it's one of those things that, uh, you know, it kind of crops up as often happens when we're researching an episode. Like, I'm like, ooh, I want to do this fabulous hairstylist from the 50s. And then you realize, like, oh, there's a there's a really bigger kind of important aspect to this. Yeah. Uh, th- that is well, worth you, examining. You and I had a conversation while you were doing the research about how it's possible that that by affecting this persona he he really reinforced the scare the stereotypes stereotypes i mean we could say that too kind the, of <laughs> the stereotype of like the gay male hairdresser and that's something that it really persists uh a yeah lot. yeah having worked in the salon industry with people of all types Sure, there are some people that kind of fit a stereotype, but there is a whole spectrum of other people with a whole lot of other personalities that probably don't appreciate assumptions being made about them. Well, and it reminds (laughs) me of when I was in college, I was an orientation leader. uh, And we had a, uh, during orientation leader training, there was just a lot of discussion about making sure that we were welcoming of everyone. uh, And because I was in college in the 1990s in relatively mountainous, not relatively, definitely mountainous, relatively rural North Carolina. (laughs) Uh, Like for a lot of people, it was their first experience meeting another person, like meeting a gay person at all. And so that like that was part of what we talked about. And uh, our orientation leader team actually put together a presentation to teach to other orientation leaders uh, about that and about stereotypes and perceptions. And we had two people, one, uh, one a guy and uh, one a lady who stereotypically were like people interpreted them as being a gay man and a lesbian. Right. Both of them were straight. (laughs) And so (laughs) like they would begin the presentation with being like, all right, who thinks because we're up here today and because I talk like this and because I look like this, like who thinks we're gay? And like 90% of the room would be like me. I think you're gay. Right. Well, (laughs) we're not. News. (laughs) News. <laughs> I don't know if you're watching Orphan Black or if any of our listeners are, and I will not really say much about it because I don't want to give anything away. But there is a sort of wonderful uh scene in the current season 
where Felix, who is a gay man on the show, has to explain to a straight guy who is trying to pass for gay, like, you have no idea. Do you know any gay people? And he says no. And he's like, yes, you do. (laughs) (laughs) You absolutely do. It's not it's not one type of behavior or person (laughs) like you absolutely know gay people. Uh, So that's that's our our note on Ramon and how he can kind of offer us an opportunity to think about sort of some of these uh, social expectations and how people are defined. And where some of that seems to come from historically. Yeah. So to close out, we're going to use another quote from Vidal Sassoon about Ramon, who once said, quote, he weaved magic throughout his work and made us feel we were doing so, too. There was only one Ramon. Do you also have some listener mail? Hair history. <laughs> I do have listener mail that has nothing to do with hair. I also want to reiterate the thing that you said at the top, which is that um, if you are uh, an expert in in, in the history of like African hairstyles and black hairstyles in America and elsewhere, uh, send us a note. Yes, please. That would be spectacular. <laughs> we are eager. There are, there are lots of things that you and I are comfortable talking about, even though like we personally are not part of a specific community, but that is one where that you and I are not the people to. to share that yeah. And I, I have spoken, kind of reached out to a couple of, um, specialists in black hair that I know and they're very knowledgeable and really know their stuff. But when I asked them how comfortable they would be talking about the history, they were like, e less so, Um, you know, they know current stuff and they know some of the history, but in terms of like the wider spectrum of history, they were not so um, comfortable about that. But uh, so yeah, write to us if you know that, but before we uh, give you the email address, I'm going to read a different listener mail, which is actually a comment uh, from our Facebook page, and it is from the National Gallery of Canada related to our Vigée Le Brun episode. If you remember, I think I had posed the question we talked about during the revolutionary time, uh, people who were not fa- fans of Vigée Le Brun threw sulfur into her basement, and we were wondering if that would affect her paintings. We have an answer. Uh, this is from the National Gallery of Canada, who said, Holly and Tracy, thanks for sharing your love for Vigée Lebrun. Did you get an answer to your question about sulfur? You ladies know your stuff. Nope, I was just guessing. Uh, <laughs> sulfur in the atmosphere can be bad for paintings, especially those that aren't varnished, provoking discoloration of certain pigments. In the most extreme cases, turning a white pigment black. One early manual for conservators even advised explicitly against cooking of certain vegetables near paintings... Bet you can guess which ones. Uh, that said, we are presently opening crates and examining paintings for the opening of the exhibition here, and we aren't seeing any evidence of that type of discoloration. All of the paintings are breathtaking, and we can't wait to unveil our new version of this extraordinary exhibition here in Ottawa. So that's the exhibition that was at the Met in New York and now is going to be uh, at the National Gallery of Canada. I don't know for how long, but for a while. It's opening shortly, I believe. Uh, so if you're in that area, absolutely go see it. Uh, and it's good to know now that we have an answer to the sulfur question. Uh, <laughs> if you would like to write to us, you can do so at historypodcast at howstuffworks.com. Again, any uh, experts in black hair history, please write to us. Uh, you can also reach out to us at facebook.com slash history on Twitter at history at pinterest.com slash history at mistinhistory.tumblr.com, and we're on Instagram at, can you guess it? Missed in history. <laughs> uh, if you would like to do a little bit of research uh, about some of the things related to what we talked about today, you can go to our parent site, House of Works. 
Type in the words hair color in the search bar and you'll get an article called How Hair Color Works, which will explain sort of how pigments will actually stick to hair. You can also visit us online at mistinhistory.com where you can find show notes for all the episodes that Tracy and I have worked on together, as well as a complete archive of every show from the beginning when it was very, very short. Uh, and we encourage you, come and visit us at houseofworks.com and mistinhistory.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. How do you find a new way forward when suddenly you have to, ready or not? Maybe you're relocating. Or having your first baby. Or leaving a relationship. Just starting. We're just starting over. On the road to somewhere, we talk about all of it, getting really honest. And we definitely laugh our way through it. That's the beauty of this journey. I'm Lisa Oz. And I'm Jill Herzig. Join us as we navigate our own big life changes on our podcast, The Road to Somewhere. Listen to The Road to Somewhere on the iHeartRadio app, on Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. We are going to Italy. After the success of last year's trip to Paris, we are planning another Similar trips, still with defined destinations, this time to Rome and Florence. Yeah, we are going to spend a week exploring some amazing things. We're going to have city tours of both Rome and Florence. We're going to see the Roman Colosseum, the Vatican Museum, and the Sistine Chapel, St. Peter's Basilica, Vatican City. This is just a tiny fraction of all the stuff we're going to get to do. Yeah, it's May 14th to 21st, 2020. And to get more information, go to defineddestinations.com and scroll down to the Roman Florence trip with Stuff You Missed in History class.